When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hi, Will. Hi, Amy. <laughs> Welcome to Diddy TV. It's good to be here. We just heard your set, and uh, it's an amazing set. Um, new album. All sorts of amazing things going on with you yeah. this year. Uh, maybe we'll just kind of launch into some of the really awesome things that are happening for you. Yeah. Uh, you are up for... Um, album of the Year for the Blues Awards, mm -hmm. Song of the Year for yeah. the Blues Awards. Um, but that was with Shamika. Shamika Copeland, Copeland, yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's coming right up. And then uh, a song I wrote with my friend Dean Owens was UK Americana Song of the Year. Well, so you, you got cool. your fingers in all these pies. Yeah, and um, you've been you've been a songwriter for many many years, yep. and obviously a performer starting way back. Yep. You were, what, 16 when you got started or before that? I started that? playing gigs when I was 12. Where what you, prompted you to pick up the guitar? You know, I just fell in love with rock and roll. And, um, and, and it ramped up when I was 10, 11 years old, and I wanted an electric guitar. I loved uh, Bruce Springsteen and Kiss. Who I doesn't? Thought, I thought they were the same thing. I had Born to Run and Kiss Alive, and it was just this, and I had Bob Dylan Desire, and I had uh, Aerosmith Rocks and Aerosmith Toys in the Attic, and I just thought it was all just this, and Allman Brothers at Fillmore East, and Jimi Hendrix, uh, the greatest hits song, album, you know, that had all the greatest hits on it, and some other songs I'd never heard before, like 51st Anniversary, why was that on the greatest hits album? I don't know, but um, anyway... I just loved it, and I wanted to play. And so when I was turned 12, May 1st, 1976, I saw I got a $4.50 ticket to see Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band, and I got a $20 guitar and a $10 amp. So I got a really nice 1976 birthday. Nice. And I went to see Springsteen, and, and I was just like, okay, this, I am definitely going to do hooked. this. It was a thousand-seat theater in Mobile. He played two nights in Mobile because Mobile had such a great radio station, WABB, that Springsteen was getting so much airplay there on his first three records before he really broke. Well, Mobile's the, kind of uh, centrally located. It is, and they had a great radio station. I mean, they were playing Elvis Costello and Springsteen and Graham Parker and Tom Petty and The Who, Quadrophenia, FM radio. Like, And I was hearing all this stuff. And then, you know, I got to see Springsteen, and I got and I went home, and there was my guitar, and I didn't know how to play it. Who's the quintessential live performer? Yeah, and then really, when you listen to that music, it's it's the guitar part. The guitar is almost more of, a, for a lot of that, for Born to Run. It's, That's it. Compared to 
it's well, it's it's kind of a prop. Mm-hmm. Like the solos are all saxophone yep. or piano or organ, and but he made it a good prop. That Telecaster, it's just <laughs> so you know. And then ultimately, I got a Telecaster like that. So I, but with, I digress. Within six months of that concert, I pl- played. I was playing my first show with a band. What, and what was the name of the band? Do you the remember? band was called the Henry Guin Band. And because, I don't know if you know, so the great band Leonard Skinnerd, they named themselves after their high school teacher that kicked them out of school for having long I hair. I did not know that. His name was Leonard Skinner. And then they changed the spelling, put all the Y's in it. And, um, and so we named our band after the neighbor of, so we practiced in a garage. My friend Scott's dad, Norman Spann, helped us convert their garage into a band room. And then the neighbor, Dr. Henry Guin, would call the cops on us. So we named our band after him. Of course. Yeah, the Henry Guin band. <laughs> and so there you go. And and you were off to the races and... Yeah, uh, first thing I did was write a bunch of songs because I couldn't learn other people's songs. And then when I got the skills to learn covers, of course, that's all I wanted to do was learn how to play, you know, rock and roll all night and walk this way and, you know, uh, whatever, cover songs, because, you know, you want to learn how to play those Allman Brothers tunes and just all those tunes, Stone songs, Beatles songs, Who songs, Kink songs. And so I did, and then when I turned 16, I met this guy from Atlanta named Richard Gallo, and he had moved from the new wave punk scene in Atlanta to Mobile because he worked for NCR, National Cash Register, which was at that time like an you know, early no, computer company. And, right. And so he was like 22 or 23 living in this apartment working, but he had this knowledge of people can do their own music and go play. And I thought only Bruce Springsteen gets to do that and only Aerosmith. Like there's some magic Everyone else thing. plays covers right. of those artists. But I had written, I was writing songs. And, and so I think we met somehow. I don't even remember how we met. Maybe it was like a piece of sliver of paper that you pull off at the music store. And so I went and met him, and we started recording our songs on this four-track reel-to-reel thing. And then we had a band called Ground Zero, and we were like the new wave punk band of Mobile. Now, I read that one of your songs was on MTV. Was yeah, that, so was that with that band? No, or, so, no, so the Ground Zero played, and I graduated from high school, and we started playing. I didn't go to college. I was just in a band, and we recorded our songs. We never released them, and, and we played and played. And then it just got, it, it, it got old. I met some different people, and we started Will and the Bushmen. And so that band, I learned from my experience that if you're going to write songs, you need to release them. So yes. we went over to Slidell, Louisiana, which is right across the lake from New Orleans, and there was a studio there, and I think it was owned by either Pete Fountain or Al Hurt, one of those old Bourbon Street characters, you know, musicians. But it was a nice studio, and, um, and we recorded seven songs, and we ended up putting out this cassette called Gawk. And, and then Do it was kind of... why you called it Gawk? Because we had a picture of this crazy-looking person that GIs used to carry around in their wallet as a joke to say, this is my sister. It's just a strange looking person. <laughs> this is a long time ago. This is 37 years ago. So um, we just called it Gawk. 
and we thought it was cool. And then it was on. Like, we were a band that went around and played our own songs. So we wrote more songs. We put out a 45, uh, a song called 500 Miles. And the B-side was a song called Dear Alex, which was the first Alex Chilton tribute before the replacements. And, um, and we got reviewed in, like, some magazines. And we started going to New York. And we started going, you know, we started doing all the stuff that you do. That had to be exciting at that it age. It was very exciting. You know, it was like uh, 20, 21 years old, riding in the van, playing Boston, playing New York, playing D.C. And, um, and then we uh, started getting um, told by people in Nashville, and this is in 1987, 86, 87. And so Steve Earle uh, would call it the great credibility scare when you had Steve Earle and Nancy Griffith and Lyle Lovett and Foster and Lloyd and the first Clint Black record and the first Randy Travis record and there was this new traditional country and roots rock kind of met. And when Steve Earle and Lyle Lovett and Kelly Willis and Nancy Griffith all had major label deals, all in Nashville, it was an interesting time. And there was Jason and the Scorchers and Webb Wilder and all these other bands. And so there was a, a scene happening, and we were welcomed in it. So we moved. And what year was that? 87. We 87. Moved, the, my lease started January 1, 1988. And so... When country music was starting to take a different route. Well, it was... Route. It, it started then, right. but, but in the time that we moved in, you still had Steve Earle, Lyle Lovett, Nancy Griffith, Foster and Lloyd. Jason and the Scorchers were signed to a big record deal. This is a different world from now. So it's, it is 30 years ago, 31 years ago. But anyway, we moved there. And so then we got, we started going to New York with like, um, with management, whatever. And so we got signed to Capital EMI Records. And, um, and the record came out in 89. And then we made a video and it was on MTV, you know. And we... Um, that was the, the ultimate in 89 to have your video yeah, on MTV. it was. But so, things, like, like you, you were just saying, things changed so mm -hmm. fast. Nashville went from this place where the music nerds were getting their, their day in the sun to it was all Garth Brooks. And right. Then, and then it he changed. And then it was the 90s. And rock and roll turned music. into grunge, which is some of it is great. But it was, it was not what we were doing. So we were sort of straddling in the middle, because really what we did would now be called Americana, or it was did sort of power Did you feel like you pop. were a band without a genre? Well, I don't know if we were so interested in having a genre, but we were interested in just being able to work, you mm -hmm. know. And, and also, we learned, I learned from being on that big record label that if they're not fully on board to promote your band and ready to just pour the money into it then it really doesn't do you any good unless the whole machine is working for you it's really just more of an impedance to so you couldn't like okay we made a record they didn't promote it let's make another record and they're like well hold on a second there not right, so fast at that point you've already signed an agreement and they're you're stuck now you're in a box then you have to get out of your deal so mm -hmm. we made us another record um so we had made our, our cassette and then we put out a 45, we put out an album, and then we made the major label record, and then we made a, another record, and it didn't come out for like a year and a half. We had to find a home for it. 
and it took a year and a half or two years to get it on another label. And by that point, I mean, you know, I'm like 25, 26 years old, and two years, you know, you're just, you feel like, what's the point? Right. I did. And because by the time that record comes out, you've recorded it three years ago or well, something. Well, and you know. you've already moved on. You've written other music. You're a songwriter. Yeah. And so it's just, and then nothing happened with it. So I quit, and, I, and then I was in another band called The Biscuits with Tommy Womack and Mike Grimes, who owns Grimey's Records and owns The Basement East, and um, a great drummer named Tommy Meyer. And we, got, we made a record because, by God, I was going to make records. Like, we're going to record. It's going to get released. We're going to put something out. So we recorded a record, and then, oh boy, records, John Prine's label, came knocking and they wanted the record they loved our band so we signed a deal with them and, and it was you know it was, it was John Prine I mean it's cool you know but but also being in a band that's a like a democratic band mm-hmm. and we all make decisions together like what's the set list going to be what's everything that we do is a community Shared communal decision I was pretty tired of it I'd mm-hmm. been in a band since I was 12 years old and I was about 30 at that time so so I quit that. And then <laughs> I got married. And then I was trying to start my solo career in the early 90s. A little and, more control. Well, I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ex- except that then I, I, got a, I, I met Todd Snyder, who was living in Memphis at the time. And he called me one day and said, I need you to play guitar on my tour. And I said, what tour, what, you know, and so I, I went down to MCA, Margaritaville Records on Music Row, and I got a cassette of his first album, Songs from the Daily Planet, and I thought, well, I could, I could sink my teeth into this. This is great, and uh, Eddie Shaver had played guitar, the late, great Billy Joe Shaver's, excuse me, Billy Joe Shaver's not the late, great, the late, great Eddie Shaver, who's Billy Joe Shaver's son, played guitar on it, and it's fantastic. Anyway, so I drove over here, and we had an audition for me at Newbies. I remember Newbies. And, uh, and, and, we, and I got the gig, and we played that night at the Daily Planet. And then I played for the next four or five years with Todd and wrote with him, played on the records, toured. He's an incredible artist. Yeah, it was just a great time. And so, um, and so I put off my solo career, you know, again, because I was working with this guy. We played, we toured 10 months out of the year. We toured hard. And so what was that experience like? You, it was you've... the first time I had ever not fronted a band. You know, I had always what, sung the songs and played Was there lead something guitar. you learned from that? I learned how to play guitar without mm-hmm. being the lead singer. So you start paying attention to the intricacies mm-hmm. of playing the guitar. And so then I had to learn to sing and play at the same time as a front, as an artist again. Because I the learned same all intricacy? these. Well, I learned all these guitar things. Mm-hmm that I had been sort of glossing over as a front man of a band. I mean, I had always been the guitarist, but mm-hmm. I'd been singing the whole time, singing lead and playing guitar. And then when you pull back and play guitar, you start to learn, oh, well, that doesn't actually sound very good. Let me do this. Let me work on playing slide guitar and open tuning. Let me learn how to finger pick. Let me, uh, I'm just tended towards that. Like I get. So you learn all these new techniques, but now you've got to incorporate that back into playing guitar singing and songs. singing. Yeah. So I kept writing songs, and and then, and then, uh, and you were uh, writing for other people. Along well, the not way. really so much at that time. I mean, I was always open to it, mm-hmm. but um, 
the only other people that were doing my songs at that time were mainly Todd Snyder that we'd write together and he'd mm -hmm. put some of those songs on his albums. Or he covered one on a record, that a song I wrote. And Anyway, um, and then I really wanted to, again, make a record. And it had been about seven years since I'd made the Biscuits record. So, but I, I had a, a little kid and I... A marriage. What, one kid? At the time I had one, now I have two. But but I was I didn't have spare money to book studio time. Sure. And so this wonderful guy I had met during the Bushman era uh, named Bob Bailey Lemansky, um, who had who was working at EMI Publishing, he called me one day out of the blue and said, Do you have any songs that you want to record? I said, Yeah. And he said, I buy the tape for EMI's demo studio and and so these tape companies Ampex uh, BASF whatever they give me samples of the new formulations of two inch recording tape and he said I've stashed away like three reels for somebody who wants to record here because this place is strictly nine to five country songwriters and he said Guy Clark comes in every few years and makes a record he goes so come in at night and record and I said okay so I started working on it, and it turned into my first solo record, which is called This, and um, which is a reference to this love song I wrote for my wife that one of the lines in it says, we'll never be happier than this. And so I used the it's word It's a nice this. sentiment. Yeah. And uh, although, if you've been married a long time, it's like, well, the, we'll never be happier <laughs> than something that happened 25 years ago, babe, you know? <laughs> Well, <laughs> but I don't really feel that I'm way. not sure what to say to that, but <laughs> I'm married too for 17 years. So yeah, remember that when we were so happy. Um, but uh, and so we'll put out a record and but I was a working, you know, guitarist dad guy. And I was started working with with Rodney Crowell. And um, did you feel like being a dad, you needed to be at home a little more than traveling or if I did, I didn't mm. do it because mm. I was on the road with They're Rodney road. Crowell because that was where the work was. And I started to get studio work. By the time I started to get session work, the music business was sort of starting to shrink a little bit. And so I'm still probably one of the more busy studio musicians around, almost anywhere, but it's not enough. Like, I wouldn't be able to... You need to be a performer. Well, I, I need to do that because that's just my tendency. Mm -hmm. I'm, I keep writing songs that I want to sing. And so... But I love to work in the studio. I mean, you know, so it's I've done a lot of stuff. I noticed you one <laughs> you worked with one of my favorite bands, the Jayhawks. Yeah. What did you do with them? Well, mainly just uh, just tour, and mm -hmm. then we we did some uh, some solo stuff. But when Gary was in the Jayhawks, and he did some solo shows, we backed him up. But I mean, I, I'm not really like I'm not I haven't been a member of the Jayhawks or anything like that. And then and I'm you know, but I've I've. They're very melodic. Oh God, they're great. Good and harmonies. Yeah, but I got the bug, you know, again of making those record, you know. So now my my new record is, I think, my ninth solo record, and I think I've made eleven records with bands I've been in. So I'm right at about That's 20, a lot of records. Twenty records, and I've played on about over a hundred records for other people. And when you put, you recently put out a record. Mm -hmm. I like it down here, mm -hmm. which is your. Uh, description of the south or how you think about the south and you're it's, from alabama it's part of it yeah i, I tried to get it all in one record i don't know if it's possible you know but 
And, I'm the, from, idea, and the idea for this came out of a lot of the political turmoil yeah, that's it, recently well, happened. It, and the first thing that happened was uh, my dad fell ill, and he's no longer with us, but I was trying to help out. My mom was his caretaker, and I was trying to help out and do my part. So I'm about 430 miles away from Mobile, so I started just making that drive as much as I could. And in that time, I started playing in this band called Willie Sugarcaps. And we made a couple of records and we played a bunch of shows and played Jazz Fest every year for a few years and, and had a really good time, and we still do. Um, but I started spending so much time in my childhood home and I'd just be trying to like take, sit with my dad so my mom can just get out of the house for a couple of hours. Give her some relief trying to do it you know and uh and so after many many years of just being super busy and running around I was kind of sitting there with my dad and I just started being flooded with memory like you're in your childhood home and you're just looking around not chasing after a kid or or arriving or leaving which is so much part of the life of anybody who travels for work is you arrive and then you leave I mean, like on a daily basis when you play music, you know, so it's like, and if you really think about it, I mean, denial is a healthy thing to a point because when you really think about that's what you do, there's some sadness involved, you know, in the traveling life. Sure. It's like, I said, hey to you, now I'm saying goodbye. I'm going to the next place. I'm going to do the same thing. And you start to think, am I really just like a shallow person who doesn't ever stay anywhere that long, you know? And um, So there was an introspective yeah, aspect and, to the but album. But I wrote a bunch of songs about memories I was having about growing up where I grew up. And, and um, how you felt about that? Yeah, and I think they were just, some of them were just like relating a memory, and they turned into some songs that I really love. And, uh, and so... One song is actually called Alabama. Yeah. What was yeah. that about? That song is about, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible song, you know, but I had to write it. Uh, the last acknowledged lynching in America happened in Mobile in 1981. Um, it's hard to believe it was that late in our right, history. Right, And I was in high school, and the gentleman who was killed, Michael Donald, had graduated two years before from my high school. I never knew him, but I remember it. But, you know, like a lot of things that happen when you're 17 years old, you you're, you see it, you're shocked, and then you move on and hang out with your friends. Um, but then going back to help take care of your father, sort of. I'd walk my mother's dog past that street, and they've now mm -hmm. named it after him, yeah. Michael Donald Avenue. And, um, and I'd see it, and I'd th think about it. And then this book came out that tells the whole story, plus all this backstory about what was going on as late as 1981 and in the years right leading up to it, where you think, you'd want to think, we're done with that. Mm -hmm. you know. And then, so I read the book, and it was during 2016, and the world is what it is, and the politics are what they are, and the division of people is what it is. And so I wrote this song uh, based on this melody that my friend from Scotland, Dean Owens, wrote. Uh, he sent me a little phone, iPhone recording, and it had the word Alabama. He was humming, and then he'd go, Alabama. And so I just took it, and I wrote the story of Michael Donald from the point of view of the ghost of Michael Donald. So it's kind of, 
it might be kind of a pretentious thing in a way to try to inhabit someone that had something like that done to him. But I just told the story. I didn't put my feelings in about it. I mean, I can tell you now that it's a terrible, horrible, terroristic thing that happened not very long ago and definitely in my lifetime. Um, and so that was part of making this record. But I had recorded 10 songs separately from that already when I wrote that song. So that song got recorded at home separately. The other songs were recorded in like a two-day period in the studio. Which studio did you record we them? We recorded in Blackbird, which is Blackbird. Um, a big fancy studio in Nashville that has a recording oh, school. Blackbird? Blackbird. Oh, Blackbird, yes. And um, it's a nice, I mean, it's where it's a beautiful studio. big-time artists record there. Mm -hmm. I, I worked with Buffett there one time, Jimmy Buffett there one time, and uh, I know the Raconteurs recorded there, and um, a bunch of country stars worked there. But they have a recording school, and they offer you this little deal where the students are the assistant engineers, and so you you have two days of full band recording and two days of sort of overdubbing and finishing things up. So that's how I did my record, which was great, because you have these parameters rather than just I'm recording at home over the course of however long. You felt like you needed to knock it out. Well, it's just nice to have those. I mean, I can record I can record at home all day. I've got drums in there and everything, but it's kind of nice not to just have an open-ended thing. So I recorded like 10 songs, and then I recorded Alabama. So I had to knock off one of the 10 so it would fit on a piece of vinyl because that's another constraint that I actually think is a wonderful one, the constraint of a single vinyl record. So... When vinyl's making a big comeback. It is. It sure is. It is, and it's a, it's a trip in the world where most of your sales happen at a show that you've got to lug around vinyl. But I love records. I mean, I'm a record freak, and I always have been. I found so. a little time capsule. I had this box of old vinyl records, mm -hmm. and it went with a roommate that I had in college. And that's been a thousand years ago, just to be clear. Yeah, but that... <laughs> and yeah. Uh, she called me recently and said... I've got this box, and I want to return it. Where's my Hunters and Collectors EP? <laughs> and I looked in there, and I thought, wow, Where's I actually had pretty good taste. <laughs> hey, that was my era, <laughs> by the way. Well, me too. And um, so, yeah, it's, so I made it. And, but this, so the record, I st the reason I called it I Like It Down Here, because there's a song on there uh, that is a celebration of eccentric characters in the South. And there's eccentric characters everywhere. But that's where I'm from, and that's where I go back to to go home. And so that's the place where I knew my first eccentric characters and had my first experiences. In the South, we kind of embrace our eccentric characters. Right. You know, my mom once said to me, she said, oh, you know, in the North, they put great Aunt Helga in an institution. In the South, they just say, put your stuff away. She's coming over. She, she might right. steal it. Yeah. <laughs> She's a, just another child of God. All right. Bless her heart, right, as they say. Right, and um, so it's a it's a celebration, but also like a, a look at um, you the fact it's a look at the fact that if you love something about a place or a lot about a place, but there's also this history of violence and cruelty and bigotry and hatred. And how do you reconcile underneath that? this landscape mm -hmm. of 
great music and great food and great culture and great literature and great storytelling and great people and great friendliness and openness, um, it's like the, uh, you know, Stranger Things, it's like the upside down. It is the upside down. So I wanted, I couldn't not look at the upside down, especially considering that I was making this record 2016, 2017. It took a while to put it out. It's the way, that's the way records are. So if you're, committing to a point of view you kind of have to think two years from now do I still do I still feel the same way two years because it's now? probably not going to get in people's hands until then right and then they're going to want to talk about it and you right. have to sort of defend that position and yeah what headspace unfortunately I, I, yeah the position is still I mean I, well not unfortunately let me put it this way the position is still I love the south and there, you don't get blues and rhythm and blues and soul and rock and roll and gospel and country and bluegrass and uh, New Orleans food and black-eyed peas and cornbread and collard greens without the awful history, without the upside down. You don't get it. But a lot of creativity comes from being uncomfortable about something. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, people got to uh, sing it out. You were mentioning a bunch of authors that come from the South, and mm -hmm. there's authors, there's musicians, there's, you know, painters, yeah. every type of creative person. And a lot of it is that yin-yang. It's that um, discord or unbalance that actually brings to light a lot of creative yeah. creativity. Yeah, yeah. I have a song called cook that down and it's it's not on this record but it's written for my friend's step grandfather who was a, a new orleans he grew up in czech town in, in mississippi gulf coast and a lot of those folks were from eastern europe mm -hmm. and they moved to new orleans to get a better job they worked in the shipbuilding or, or or sewed sails back in the day you know sails for sailboats and because they were water people so they moved to the coast and, uh, and this Uncle Nick was, if you were in his house, he sounded like a racist. If you were on the street, he was friends with everybody. And, and they were friends with him, everybody. And so he, so, and, and this song is about his instructions of how to cook red beans. You got to, Chief, you got to cook that down. And um, so, and that song probably belongs on this record, but I wrote it later. So... But that, to me, is the South, and that's like New Orleans. It's like you're in somebody's house, and they're talking bad about a race of people, and then you walk outside the house, and everybody in that race of people is his friend. And he's not, it's like, so it's bizarre. Right, why is that? But I it's, mean, it's human nature, I guess, but you, it's, it's hard to reconcile that. That's and, how that guy mm -hmm. is. And it, I think it informs the situation we're in now, where you have perfectly nice people with perfectly awful points of view, depending on which way you look at it. I was talking to a friend of mine today who has a different point of view of mine. And I can't argue him out of it. So we just stay friends. He's a good guy. I think his politics is terrible. He thinks mine is stupid. So, but we're still friends. And um, I think that we do better when we look outward rather than inward. And we look out at the world and who's around us and try to 
get to know them rather than just look at ourselves and what we feel about something. It's so easy to do it now. Well, it's so easy to impose. Live in your phone and look right. at everything. And then how inside. you grew up and then impose all that on what you think someone else is like. Right. And when you really take the time to get to know somebody, it's a completely different experience. Yeah. And you find out that we all have brothers and sisters and parents and right. all those all, things. I mean, all human beings are just human beings, no right. matter what. Male, female, sexual preference. I mean, and so there's a lot of us, and we we take up a lot of room and use up a lot of resources. So what's we're next not, for you? We're not honeybees. No, no, we're not honeybees. We're not, we're not, we're not you know, bobcats. We're no. humans, and we just we cut a wide swath through the world, so we need to, like, be kind to each other and say excuse me and use our turn signals, I think. <laughs> so um, what's next for me is uh, this record actually being out um, and continuing to play tour dates. My, my work... When I was a kid, you'd read like Rolling Stone magazine or something and think, oh, well, somebody, you go on tour and then you go home. And the truth is, very few people do that, that play music. Most people just, you work when you get work and you go home when you don't have work. (laughs) (laughs) And then you work, you know. So, I mean, I'm actually... So being at home is sort of a bittersweet sort of It's awesome now. It It took a long time to get that to be sort of... Uh, it's not it's not bittersweet at all. It's, it's fantastic, but um, I'm just saying that my tour doesn't start because I have a new record out. Like right. I played last night in Jackson, Mississippi, with one of the greats of American music, Spooner Oldham, and and also one of the greats of storytelling and songwriting, Kate Campbell. But I mean, you know, what am I going to do? Not go do that show just because my record's not out for another couple of weeks? I'm going to go play with Spooner and play yeah. all those. Muscle Shoals R&B songs and play my songs and have him play piano on them and I'm going to do it, you know. But that was a great show. It was great. And uh, so now my ball's been rolling for a while. So I always have work and uh, played this festival in Florida last weekend, uh, Swanee Spring Reunion. And, you know, we we played with uh, Jim Lauderdale and we saw Marty Stewart and we saw... Um, we love Jim. Steep Canyon Rangers and all these people, mm-hmm. you know, all kind of, yeah. So it just goes on and on and on now. So it and must so be really rewarding at this point in your it life. It is, it is. I, I, I get it now that there isn't any more reward than simply what you get when you make music, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. It's good to make a living, and I need to, and I do, but the music part is just, it has its own reward that happens whenever you just, play we had someone in the other day a fiddle player and she was saying hey you know if I can just continue to play my whole life I like performing but I like playing more than performing I just really like to play music and and just to know that I can continue to do it is is enough for me yeah well I mean you know you you're born and you learn how to do what you do and then time just unless you're just if you're fortunate enough to not miss any meals and not miss any, you know, mortgage payments or whatever and continue rolling along, it's easy to get caught up in the little things and get bitter about, you know, what you imagined you would have or what you would get to do. But I can't really do that. I mean, I've, I sing harmony with Emmy Lou Harris on a regular basis and I play guitar with her and I play guitar with all my other friends. You know, I'm working in, I'm going to, uh, Buddy Miller's house 
tomorrow and doing Buddy and Jim's show. And then I'm going to work in the studio the next day with an Australian producer. And then I'm taking Saturday off. <laughs> and then I'm starting back up again. So I have a, yeah, I have a I think rich, most musicians would dream to have that schedule. This is what I them. dreamed of. If you told me that I'd be singing the duet on a Towns Van Zandt song with Emmylou Harris, you know, at the O2 Arena in London, which I didn't even know until, like, we walked on stage and saw the set list. But I did it, you know. And it's not because I'm so great. It's because I've just stuck around and stuck with, with what I love to do and been lucky enough to not have anything stop me. Well, we were extremely excited that you were able to stop by today. You're just amazing talent. Um, Thank you. Well, this is an amazing... Look at look <laughs> where we are. I mean, well, and everyone needs to go out and get the album. You do. Yes, yes you do. It'll be an instant classic. <laughs> and yeah. we hope you come back again. Absolutely. Let's do it. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.